East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking on this Memorial Day weekend. Later, our weekly conversation with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman about the 2020 presidential campaign. And Rich Tupago will bring us more music with Michigan Roots. First up, though. Friday would have been City Pulse's third annual Margarita Fest, but because of the pandemic, it was canceled. That not only means losing a fun night, but also a chunk of revenue. With that in mind, I want to bring in the new president and CEO of the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau and one of my favorite people, Julie Pinkston. Julie, well, thank welcome. You. Thank <laughs> You're you, welcome. Burl. You're welcome. Julie, let's start with what would have been. Greater Lansing's not as big a tourist destination as places up north. But what would a typical summer have looked like here for visitors and conventions? So interesting. Um, yes, obviously tourism is, is more prevalent um, and, and noticed up north, but here in our region, tourism is, is just as strong. It's just a little more hidden. Uh, we spend a lot of the summer uh, welcoming sporting events for amateur tournaments that are held here. We probably have three to four stacked every weekend uh, in the key summer months, kicking off in May. There's always a very large tennis event that um, is, is about this time frame. So we have a lot of loss related to some of those um, uh, sporting events that typically come here. And then just generally in the summer, we have a lot of people that uh, that come out and, and experience all the festivals that take place in our community. We, again, have a festival just about every weekend and, and have lots going on in the community for people to experience through arts and culture and different small town festivals and a lot of great connectivity uh, in the summer months for that. And and then, of course, the Lansing Lugnuts have a great summer presence and do some very fun activities related to ball games and family fun experiences. So summer is, is definitely a busy time um, here as well and just, a, a, you know, something that we'll look forward to hopefully next summer. Uh, Julie, can you put uh, a price tag on uh, the losses uh, we're facing this summer? So I was speaking to someone not too long ago, and I and he said, "Do you have a number?" And I said, "It's just a lot." <laughs> so <laughs> I, I like that a lot because it is difficult to quantify. Um, it's obviously millions and millions um, these days um, going forward. Um, but the 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 intent and and the will to travel is still very strong. We're looking at a lot of data that shows that many people are still looking. Uh, to, to get out somewhere in, in, in this summer time frame, uh, we have a lot of options that are able to be experienced outdoors and uh, great connectivity there. So, uh, so even though, yes, it, the losses have been very dramatic and very impactful for the region, uh, there are, you know, that intent is still there and we're hopeful that, you know, throughout the summer some folks will still venture back and that um, maybe some of our sporting events for amateur and family sporting competitions um, will still be able to be held later this summer. Um, there's a lot of work being done on holding safe sporting events, so uh, that may be something we can have come back uh, towards August or something like that, which would then help our whole community start to, to see some of that bounce back. Uh, obviously, 
some things are just going to change, maybe go away. Uh, Common Ground was, uh, uh, I guess, in a process of transitioning to a a different format, uh, for example. But uh, do you uh, have any sense of what we might lose from this experience? Um, so that's an interesting question. I think we're, it's a little soon to quite understand that. We're obviously working with a number of our members and partners who operate small businesses and restaurants. And, you know, a couple have, have gone out of the market already. So that's a trend that we don't want to see continue as things uh, shift back to opening. Um, but the the loss, um, you know, if we're looking at it going into the fall and late summer with um, football for Michigan State University, that will be uh, a, a loss uh, hmm. that that is uh, dramatic. That's you know probably over the whole season without a, a fan uh, presence in the in the stadium will be very impactful to this entire region. So that's probably one we have our eyes on, uh, especially because it will be that that major loss uh, for for so many businesses that have a ripple effect from, you know, you think of the small restaurants nearby in East Lansing and all the different things. We have so many people that come in for those games that stay in our hotels. Many of those weekends are sellout weekends for our hotel community. So that those those mm. are some of the, the losses that, that will be impactful. So, yeah, going forward, will that change and how does that look and what will we lose forever? I'm not sure we're quite there to to have mm-hmm. that picture yet um some of the festivals that that were earlier in the year have scheduled um into october so if those are able to proceed then maybe you know i know beer fest in the ballpark is a april event that's now in october and if that's able to still be held successfully and safely then that would be you know even though it was lost in its original time frame it still found a way to <laughs> to be held later in the year and that would be a good success story. So hopefully some of the festivals that weren't able to take place and then lost that revenue for this year can, can bounce back for next year. But we haven't quite seen that full picture of what that looks like yet. Uh, You're listening to uh, 88.9 FM, the uh, impact uh, here uh, at Michigan State University. I'm Burl Schwartz and I'm talking to Julie Pinkston, the new president and CEO of the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau. Uh, Julie, tell me about what uh, uh, your organization has been doing during this period uh, to uh, help its members. Absolutely, because there's so many good success stories related to that. Uh, That's what we found in this time period really to be the most exciting is to every day see new examples of the creativity and the, the willingness to try new things of many of our local uh, members and partners. So, for instance, um, the state capitol building has been closed throughout this entire time frame other than a very robust um, group uh, for protests, but Mm -hmm. um, that's been on the outside. (laughs) But um, For the most part. (laughs) For the most part, yes, I forgot about the one, you're right. (laughs) So, um, actually, uh, they now have started doing a virtual tour program and so one of the great outcomes is it's connecting some, one of our premier attractions to the world that can able be able to experience uh, a tour through the Capitol building. But the, also the thing is, is that maybe going forward, this is something that in the future, a year from now, let's say, and there is a, a tour group for a, 
school in the Upper Peninsula that can't make that trek to come and visit the state capitol as they're learning about the history of Michigan, that it allows them to take a tour when maybe they couldn't have before. So, And also, I think some of the virtual things that are being offered by Impression 5 Science Center, Abrams Planetarium at Michigan State University are exposing our destination to so many other people that that's going to encourage people to hopefully then look at us to come, you know, down the road for for a visit in person. So they saw some great content and some great experiences being shared at our science center. So now let's go there and be hands-on with it when we're able to do so safely. So I think the the attractions have really stepped up with a lot of virtual content. So we've promoted our destination with virtual vacations and, and had a great success and and shared far and wide um, on, on what you can do virtually. We've also obviously worked with a number of our restaurants here about just trying to promote the curbside and takeout options that are being offered. And it's encouraging that more and more are being added to that list now as things start to, to shift a little bit that maybe restaurants um, will open soon and that this is ramping them up by doing the, the curbside and takeout options. And then we did a lot of uh, promoting with some shopping options as well because the, some of our retailers have been extremely creative too. So like Keen's uh, store in Mason, you could window shop and they would show on Facebook Live or uh, other uh, ways of presenting the merchandise and then you could call and reserve it and then curbside pick it up. So we've been trying to promote all those unique ways that, that our local um, businesses are, are doing those promotions. And, and we definitely promoted um, through our hotels. Um, they've been really great uh, stepping forward, offering discounted rates for um, first responders and medical professionals who haven't been able to return home. They're hosting um, the Michigan National Guard in some of our properties right now. So, so many you know ways that, that our local hospitality community has engaged in new and unique ways that, that really have, makes me really proud to say that I'm a part of it and glad to be able to promote it too far and wide as, as we can. Well, on that upbeat note, I want to thank you for being on City Pulse and uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, Memorial Day weekend. My pleasure. Thank you, Burl. This is City Pulse on 89FM, The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Now it's time for political scientist Matt Grossman and his insight into the 2020 presidential campaign. Matt, what's new and interesting on the political front since we talked last time? Well, we're starting to, to see a little uh, more information in the presidential race. Um, uh, we're hearing about vice presidential uh, running mates that uh, might uh, be looking for, including uh, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, we're also seeing some state polling where Biden appears to be uh, doing pretty well in the major uh, swing states. And, of course, we're still having the ongoing uh, coronavirus crisis and uh, trying to understand the, the political fallout from that. And uh, we've seen in the last <clears throat> two weeks uh, two polls on how governors are doing. And the first one, I think the... Uh, University of Minnesota Ipsos poll, uh, Governor Whitmer got a, got 72% from Michigan voters, but then a week later in a Washington Post Ipsos poll, she got 62%. How do you analyze her performance? Well, the national context first is that um, I think all but two governors um, are ha have higher approval than President Trump on the 
coronavirus crisis handling. So for the most part, people are trusting uh, their their governors. Um, now, you would expect uh, that to polarize over time uh, and to see uh, Republicans and independents uh, less likely to be satisfied over time. And there is some evidence of that. Democrats are holding steady uh, in Michigan, but uh, independents and Republicans uh, might be growing uh, slightly uh, less pleased uh, with the governor's performance. Uh, and that is, I think, what we'd expect. Uh, we, we see a, a two approaches now by potential candidates uh, for vice president on the Democratic ticket. Uh, we, we have uh, the one uh, one approach is uh, the traditional one. Uh, just don't answer the question when someone asks you if you want to be vice president. Uh, we saw Gretchen Whitmer uh, and uh, Rachel Maddow show Thursday night uh, with a new version of the non-answer. Uh, but uh, uh, then we have Stacey Abrams in Georgia who's running for vice president. <laughs> uh, a remarkable change in uh, public approach. What do you think of the two approaches? Well, the first approach is certainly the norm uh, in history, um, but um, we'll get a chance to see if uh, if campaigning for for the office works. I think most people take the the first uh, with with a grain of salt. That is, they think uh, you know most people would take it if offered whatever they uh, whatever they say, um, and most people do agree to go through the the vetting process that at least uh, some. Uh, candidates are are now seeing. Um, I have uh, been reading some more research on uh, what goes into the vice presidential selection and uh, the difference that it it makes. Um, the the big findings uh, there are that it, it is often a party party level decision. That is, uh, they consult a lot of uh, officials in the uh, in their political party. Often. Uh, read polls not only from the public but from uh, their particular uh, party supporters about who they want for vice president. They also survey people who might be convention delegates or other party leaders. Um, but there's a lot of idiosyncratic decisions as, as well. So uh, there have been several examples where uh, people have been uh, picked who, who really were not on uh, the, the betting list, um, uh, most famously Sarah Palin. Uh, with uh, John McCain. And uh, I remember an obscure candidate for vice president named Bill Miller from, uh, I think, upstate New York, a Republican uh, no one had ever heard of. And uh, and uh, after that ticket lost, no one ever heard of him again. Uh, if you would, uh, let's kind of go through the uh, the leading candidates, according to the media, uh, Abrams, Klobuchar, Whitmer, um, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, what do you think their strengths and weaknesses are? And feel free to add in anybody else you think should be on that list. Well, the research on uh, the electoral dynamics uh, seems to show that uh, no one votes for, for who the vice president is, uh, but the, the vice president can uh, change people's opinion of the, the president. So that Palin pick really uh, enhanced uh, concerns about McCain. It made people think that uh, McCain was not, not necessarily taking it all that seriously, uh, but it uh, also uh, lowered uh, conservatives' concern about McCain. So it, it made people think that McCain was maybe a little bit more conservative than they thought before. 
Um, and the same thing happened on the other side. Um, when Obama picked uh, Biden, uh, people became less concerned about Obama's inexperience, uh, less concerned about uh, his age and more concerned about McCain's age. Um, so uh, it's those kind of dynamics that we would look for. Um, there isn't much evidence of, of home state effects. There isn't much evidence uh, that you can win over social groups like uh, women. Um, at least there was no evidence that either Palin or Geraldine Ferraro were able to, to do that. Um, of course, we've never had a African-American or, or Latino uh, nominee, so we don't know if there could be uh, some gains there. Uh, in terms of the, the other gains, obviously, that, w that people will be thinking about are the, um, are the actual gains in, in the presidency. Um, and there is uh, seem to be evidence that vice recent vice presidents are playing uh, extremely uh, vital role in the presidential administrations, um, including the the last three um, or four. So uh, that that suggests that um, uh, you know that this decision is only partially about electoral politics, um, and you see that with some of the some of the choices uh, as well. In terms of the specifics, um, uh, that Klobuchar, who's getting mentioned recently, um, would be in part. A Midwest pick, but in part a uh, legislative pick. She actually, by our numbers, um, is the most effective legislator, just meaning that she passes the most bills and the most bills of importance uh, in the whole U.S. Senate. So um, uh, there, there is some, there's an argument for for that. Um, but Biden would, would, of course, also be the, the most experienced legislator as a as a president in terms of time in office. So. He may not need uh, to balance uh, there, um, but uh, basically the, the research suggests that the vice presidential nominee will be about trying to address concerns about the presidential nominee. So in this case, uh, the concerns might be that Biden is too old, um, that he isn't offering a fresh perspective, and that he doesn't reflect the diversity of the Democratic Party, and those will be the, the kinds of things that he tries to address. Uh, and we're talking to MSU political scientist Matt Grossman, as we do every week about the 2020 presidential campaign. You're listening to City Pulse here on 89FM, The Impact. Matt, uh, we had President Trump in town, uh, in, in Michigan rather, Thursday, uh, uh, not wearing a face mask, at least during uh, part of his visit to uh, a Ford plant, and frankly, kind of bragging about it. Uh, saying he didn't want the press to see him in a face mask. Apparently he did wear a face mask uh, out of the view of the press. So what do you think of this as a campaign strategy? Uh, Mr. Marlboro Man, I guess? Well, we don't want to make too much of it in the sense that um, a lot of people express willingness to wear uh, a mask, um, especially when they're uh, in a in a public place like a grocery store, um, there have been incidents where people are unwilling, but um, for for the most part, it is uh, widespread. There is partisan division, but majorities within each political party, um, you know, have voiced interest and willingness um, to to do so. Um, but um, you know, you would expect uh, there to be partisan division, and if President Trump speaks more loudly about it, there to be more partisan division. So. To the extent that that is a public health problem, he is, uh, you know, he is uh, bringing it on uh, further. Uh, I don't necessarily see a lot of potential political gain for him in that. Um, obviously, he's 
might be concerned with the with the image um, that that it would project. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's another case where he's kind of going against an existing public consensus, and he'll be able to move numbers among his supporters, but there's no evidence that he'll be able to gain new supporters as a result. Uh, Turning to a very different topic, we have a candidate for Congress in Virginia named Claire Russo, who is uh, making uh, 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 the focus of her campaign, the fact that she was uh, raped when she was in the the Marines, I believe. And it's uh, apparently the first time a candidate has has done that. Uh, Any thoughts on the significance of her action? Well, you know, we've had examples where where candidates have, um, you know, expressed it to the press, um, but this uh, seems to be uh, a step uh, more in terms of using it in advertising and and as campaign focus. Um, It is uh, certainly evidence that the issue is is rising in in public uh, concern and and interest. but also, you know, the, a, another sign that the candidates try to relate with with personal stories um, that that people can can grab onto. So that that piece of it is is not new, but the the combination is new. And uh, before we go now, we've gone from much uh, uh, coverage of the uh, Tara Reid accusation against. Uh, Biden, uh, that he uh, he sexually assaulted her when he was in the Senate and she worked on his staff, to the issue seems to be just sort of, it's out there, but it doesn't seem to have any movement. Um, Barring some dramatic revelation, uh, is is there a problem for Biden? Because some people are speculating that well, maybe he didn't do this, but now there's the hypocrisy issue of a Democrat uh, saying, well, I don't believe her. Well, that will still, certainly still be brought up um, by, by Republicans and by President Trump. Um, in terms of uh, moving votes, I don't think there's much evidence that it has uh, done so. Um the Biden is, you know, at approximately the same level that he was at before. Um, the levels of concern that people express are are pretty partisan. <laughs> um, that is, people who you would already think would not like Joe Biden um, are more likely to believe this and vice versa. So I'm not seeing a whole lot of movement um, from it um, in terms of whether it, it uh, is still a story in November that will depend on whether there are new details um, or new accusations that arise. Matt Grossman, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your uh, strange holiday weekend. Uh, and we, we'll talk to you next uh, next week. All right. Thank you. And that obscure vice presidential candidate I mentioned, William Miller, was on the ticket in 1964 with a far better known politician, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. You're listening to City Pulse on 88.9 WDBM-FM at Michigan State University. I'm Burl Schwartz. And uh, before we end today's show, I hope you're being smart this holiday weekend. Remember, if we get carried away, the penalty will be more cases of the coronavirus and a return to a more draconian shutdown. 
Now it's time to hear from our music editor, Rich Tupica, who will take us out on some music for City Pulse. I'm Burl Schwartz. Thanks for listening. Hi, City Pulse listeners. The track you're about to hear is from a defunct Lansing band called The People's Temple. From about 2007 to about 2016 or so, this band uh, played its kind of a its psychedelic brand of rock and roll all across Lansing, but they toured the entire country as well. And I know that right before they broke up, they were about to tour Europe, but it never happened. So this band kept busy for while they were here, and they recorded stacks of just uh, weird psychedelic songs. City Pulse, including myself, were supporters of this band. All their albums are great. All the singles are great. And this track, Sons of Stone, um, was on the full-length album, Sons of Stone, released in 2007 on Hozak Records. So if uh, you dig this psychedelic track, uh, dig in even deeper and check out the full-length album. Uh, here it is, People's Temple with Sons of Stone. <laughs> 